The Rainmaker Multiplier On Demand Series is brought to you by Clarity to Prosperity, a financial training, coaching, and IP development organization led by financial advisors, coaches, and business leaders committed to taking a holistic approach to advising. To learn more about our organization and upcoming training opportunities for financial professionals, visit ClarityToProsperity.com. Welcome to the Rainmaker Multiplier On Demand podcast. My name is Mary Stirk, and I am the CEO and founder of Stirk Financial Services, a large financial planning practice in the Midwest. And I'm also the Senior Vice President of Coaching for Clarity to Prosperity. And with me today, I have the CEO and founder of JL Smith Group, and he is also the CEO and founder of C2P Enterprises, Jason Smith. So welcome, Jason. Oh, thanks, Mary. I'm excited to do this with you. Me too. I, I think this topic is something that's going to resonate with a lot of people. And today we're talking about, can you take five months off from your business and actually have it thrive, not just survive? I think that's an awesome topic. <laughs> yeah, thanks. And, um, you know, it was, it was funny as we were coming and, you know, talking about this podcast, we really wanted to talk about kind of practice management, right? As you and I mm -hmm. were kind of brainstorming on what we wanted to talk about and like, how do you really build your business? Like uh, Dan Sullivan, a strategic coach would call it uh, a self-managing company, or even more recently, right. they've kind of coined the terminology of a self-multiplying company. And so, you know, that's what I've done. That's what you've done. And, you know, we share that in common and not a lot of advisors have, have been able to do that. So we're very blessed, very fortunate that we've been able to put the processes and systems and people in place to be able to do that. And, uh, you know, as we were talking about it, I'm like, you know what, this is perfect because this is kind of, you know, a little bit of the story that, that I tell of, of how it led up to me building the JL Smith group to be what it is today. And mm -hmm. so it would make sense. To, why don't we just kind of center the topic around that? I think that's great. So tell us a little bit of the background then and why it ended up that you were taking five months off from your business. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so imagine you're 29 years old, right? You're in, uh, you're in great shape. Um, you have a, a beautiful wife and, uh, and a young daughter and all of a sudden, you know, one day you come home from the gym and your heart's jumping out of your chest. You're whisked away to the emergency room. You're diagnosed with a heart condition that's going to wow. require life-threatening open-heart surgery. That had to be incredibly scary for you and for your entire family. Yeah, no doubt. And that was, yeah, exactly. You know, cause that was me. And, you know, at that point, you know, Mary, in, in my life, I was kind of on top of the world, right? I mean, I was making over 600 grand a year, um, really doing well of gathering assets into insurance and, and, uh, and uh, annuities and, you know, primarily, and I was working hand in hand with an, a CPA and an investment advisor and uh, an attorney, and, and I'd always believed in that coordinated approach for a long time, even before, you know, I was started doing the investment piece and the tax piece. 
eventually I started, you know, doing some of those other components that I relied on the other professionals, but they were finding, they were unbelievable mentors, but long story short. So imagine 29 years old, making 600 grand a year, kind of on top of the world, world comes crashing down. And on top of everything else, you know, I grew up in the insurance industry. I'm the youngest mm -hmm. of 10 kids. My uncle, dad, uh, brothers, sisters were in the business and I was the shoemaker's kid. I had no life insurance. Oh, and, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. And so all of a sudden, I'm like, wait a second. You know, I don't have any reoccurring revenue because all the investment advisor representative was doing all the, the you know, the fee-based investment business. I'm doing all the commissionable insurance business, and I'm referring all the CPA work and all the attorney work, you know, that, you know, and there's some residuals that come with those, you know, especially on the tax side. So basically, I just had a, I didn't really have a business. I mean, I, I was working out of a storefront. I have a part, I had a part-time assistant, wicked profitable, but I really didn't have a business. I was just a good salesperson making, right. making good money. Right. Yeah. So nothing sustainable, nothing stable. It was all dependent. All of your revenue was dependent on what was the next action you were going to take. Bingo. I was totally a 100 percent hunter and I had I could only eat what I would kill that year. <laughs> right. And so now all of a sudden. So this so it, this realization comes over me that I have to go out and I have to build my own life insurance. And what I mean by that is. I needed to build my business, the J.L. Smith Group, into a business that would run profitably with or without me. Mm -hmm. And so um, I went on a journey of the first thing I did, because I qualified for it, I was aware of it, but I had never gone to the meeting, but I joined uh, MDRT Top of the Table. And, you know, I went out on, in, you know, the first, that was the first thing I did because I knew that's where the best of the best in the industry were. Right. And I, you know, I could qualify to go, you know, join that group. So I joined that and, and that led to joining Strategic Coach and Ed Slot and then Michael Gerber's E-Myth program on process, you know, building out processes and really building the infrastructure for your business and Patrick Lencioni's table group program on building the culture and a team and, you know, more collaborative environment and on and on and on. But basically what I did is I set out to build this company and, you know, you fast forward, Mary, and I know you know this because we're partners and, and you, you were around when this happened two years ago, after many years of monitoring, I had to have that open heart surgery mm -hmm. and, and it was a scary time. I mean, I literally, you know, it was, you know, I died on the operating table and almost happened again when I went home. And uh, long story short, um, I'm great now. I'm in the best shape of my Which entire fabulous. life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yay. But, <laughs> but I had to weather a hell of a storm, right? Mm -hmm. And like, so that, it required me to take five months off after that surgery uh, and I was not able to do any work in any capacity. No phone, no email, no meetings, no text messages. I literally turned my phone over to one of my business partners, Jennifer, and I completely disconnected from the business for five months. And the crazy thing is, is I came back after five months 
and the JL Smith Group had had its second most profitable quarter ever had in the history of the company without me. <laughs> I would definitely say that meets the definition of thriving. <laughs> yeah, and and you know I had mixed feelings about that. <laughs> I mean, sure, because, yeah, you know, it's kind of a little blow to the ego, right? <laughs> yeah, right. But but what an <laughs> right exactly. But what an awesome thing to have that peace of mind that you know it's kind of like wow, I actually did it. It is a company that is not it, that is is self managing and and. God forbid if I wouldn't have made it through that time in my life, um, I know that my wife and my and my children, which I have four more, as you know now, <laughs> my five children, mm -hmm. um, really would be taken care of. And so, um, so that's you know that's how it all got started. But what Mary and I want to do, right, Mary, is we want to share a lot of the things we've put in place. Right. Because you had a similar experience, I mean, not not so dramatic, where you had to take a month off, right? Yep. Recently, even just earlier this year, I did. I had to take a month off to uh, be able to have a surgery that was necessary. And um, I, I will say, though, that um, while we had a lot of amazing things in place, I still had the fear factor there of, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen? And is the is the team that I have in place going to be able to handle everything? So I had a lot of anxiety about it. I did have some advance notice. So I was able to take some time to kind of put some things in place right before I left for that. But I did disconnect pretty fully for about a month. And and similar to your you know scenario, when I came back, sales had been happening, revenue was occurring, new clients were you know coming into the business, and um, I, I felt amazing about that, and it kind of clicked in my head. You know, I've heard in the past it said that the very best businesses might be initially built around the talents of the founder, but the ones that have staying power, eventually the founder can become irrelevant within them. And if you build your business to be self-managing or self-multiplying, then eventually you as the founder have to accept that your role is not the critical linchpin anymore that it revolves around. <laughs> so there's some definite um, emotional side of that too and the letting go of that and knowing that in order for it to thrive, you do have to let go of some of the of the reins. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You know what that makes me think of too, uh, Mary, because I know you and I both now are running on, um, you know, the entrepreneurial operating system, EOS. and mm -hmm. If you really think about that structure that you kind of grow into over time, and this is for larger practices, right? So, but, but I think it's worth spending just a minute on it. But that visionary integrator role that they talk about, there's a great book um, called Rocket Fuel um, for anybody who wants to check that out. But it's, um, it really talks about the, the role of visionary versus integrator. And as you grow into a larger practice, kind of knowing what seat you sit in. I mean, everybody has to play both until you get to a point where, you know, you have a large enough practice revenue-wise where you can put the people in place right. Right. to not have to play that dual role. But, you know, when you get to that point, I mean, the key is, is like the visionary is, you know, big ideas, big relationships, uh, research and development, always thinking forward, pioneering, you know, really, you know, mm -hmm. taking risks and just, 
doing a lot of that stuff, right? Um, but the integrator is really the one running the business. It's who everybody reports to and who's really running the company. And the key is, is like only half of all companies um, actually even have a visionary. It's not a necessity, right? It's certainly typically, you know, how a company gets started and how it ultimately, you know, has has big growth or in early stages and even in later stages. But, you know, only half of companies actually have a visionary because the key is, is the integrator's the one that runs it. The integrator's the one that keeps it going. And I think that's a big part of, you know, for me, I only have one person that reports to me in my practice. And actually that's changing because of uh, this whole EOS. I won't have anybody reporting to me, but I'm clearly the visionary at the JL Smith group. And mm -hmm. so then I have, you know, the integrator who all the other employees report up to. I used to have my integrator report directly to me. Now I'm giving him even more autonomy where we've created like a board of directors at JL Smith Group. It's not like a board, it is one that he reports up to. So the key is is um, really removing yourself from that day-to-day -day operations because if you do need to take a month off, if you are forced to take five months off like I was, and when you have everybody reporting up to you, it might feel good, right? I don't know if it feels good or not. Like it's a power thing that a lot of people, you know, they have a hard time letting go of. But if you're yep. able to let go of that power and have those people report to someone else, now all of a sudden it gives you the ability to step away and the, and it keeps on running. People aren't lost without you. Right. And, and in our firm, I am the visionary as well, and I have an amazing integrator, and hats off to her because she really does run the entire organization, but there is a tremendous amount of relief in having a fantastic integrator because it lets me focus on the things that I'm actually really, really good at instead of being stuck so much down in the details and you know managing a lot of people. So I think that that, you know, is definitely a huge key for both of us that has helped us get our practices to where they are now. But let's kind of circle back a little bit, because for you to be out of the office for five months and then come back to it in a state of thrivingness, where it's actually producing an amazing amount of revenue, there had to have been some, I think, things in place or I guess, criteria for success for that to happen. So what would you say are some of the main things that you had in place that allowed that to occur while you were gone? Yeah. So a couple things. One would be um, core processes. So okay. ever since I joined Strategic Coach 14 years ago, and it, the first thing I did is I built out my financial planning core process. Right. Because mm -hmm. that was the thing is like I realized, wow, um, I'm actually, you know, a little bit of a unicorn in regards to being 29 years old. When I showed up at the top of the table and I was the only one there without gray hair, I'm exaggerating, <laughs> <laughs> I'm exaggerating a little bit, um, especially now I'm looking this morning in my beard. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm getting gray hairs. <laughs> but <laughs> anyways, I guess that happens at 43. Um no, but showing up there and looking around and being like, wow, I, I must be doing something right, right, to be able to even just be, to be able to get in this room, 
mm-hmm. with this caliber of success. And so at that point, I was like, all right, I really need to document my core process of what I'm doing with a client and how I'm doing it and how I'm bringing this integrated holistic approach, holistic planning approach that is resulting in an incredible amount of assets being moved over to us. Because I was really the lead, and then the investment advisor just wrote up the investment business, and I wrote up the annuities and the insurance business. And then we had that court, we had the CPA doing all the all the uh, pro formas, all the tax modeling to make sure it made sense, and the attorney to come in and do legal documents. But I had a really strong core process, so that was the first thing I did, and it's evolved immensely through the years. Today, it's known as the bucket plan, and so. You know, that was the first. But then as time went on, Mary, like I had a killer Medicare program where I was bringing in, you know, agents that I was teaching how to go out and meet with people to help them take care of their Medicare services. And then once they got that done, they would introduce me in to sit down to talk to them about their money, you know, because I would as part of their process of writing the Medicare business, they would find out if they're a good prospective client for financial services. And if they were, I would go deliver their policy. So I had like a guaranteed first appointment and it it was a great process, right? I had it down to a T. My family had been running it through years. So that for years, and so that was the next core process. And then it kind of went on from there of documenting the back office workflow core processes and and on and on. And I became obsessed and you know, I still am today, Mary. (laughs) <laughs> about processes. And so, you know, that was no doubt about it. Um, probably one of the biggest differences, because if you don't have all of those processes in place to, you know, your business is too reliant on people. And so no doubt people have to run the processes. But one of the things also is if you're looking at your own practice, when stuff goes wrong, don't blame people. Don't look at the people first. Look at the process first. Chances are, if you would have had a checklist in place, if you would have had a documented process in place, and you don't have to go nuts, like with crazy detail, that's a training manual. There's a big difference between a process and a training manual. Process is more high level. What are the core components that have to be done for success to happen? A training manual is where you're going minute detail on all that core process, but mm-hmm. at least get those core processes developed. I mean, that's no doubt about one of the biggest things for me that's made it, you know, scalable. I, and, and I think that's um, very true. And where you see a lot of advisors' offices have a hiccup when somebody's gone is if the lead advisor is gone, or even if the key service team people are gone, people don't know what to do with what was coming across their desk. And if you have the checklist in place, if you have the core processes written down in such a way that someone can pick up that task and follow the process and get it done, it just allows you to have an operation that is more like a smoothly running machine. So core processes for sure are a huge part of this. But I How about you? Big yeah. thing. Oh, in yeah. terms of yeah, that's where you were going. I, no, I was going to say, I think you were going right there. Like, what would you say, Mary, would be, you know, what else other than core processes in your, you know, do you think needs to be in place? Well, from my perspective, it's all about the team. 
So core processes and having a strong team that you can trust their work are the two main things I think that make this work. Um, and, you know, our team has uh, a really good, strong history. We've, we've been around for 15 years now, and several of my team members have been with us for over a decade. So we have a very strong team that cohesively works together. But the biggest thing that I think makes it work is if your team members know they can trust each other's work and they can trust each other to get the work done. So I, and I think that is um, something that starts with a concept that's called tone from the top. So my role as the CEO and founder is to create an environment where team collaboration is a major piece of our business model, but also to have uh, it set up in such a way that I trust the work of my team and yet still have oversight and quality control to make sure that things are getting done the way that they're supposed to get done so things don't slip through the cracks. Yeah. No doubt about it. And, and you know, let's talk a little bit more about that, Mary. Let's talk about how do you get the right team members in place for those who don't have them right now? And then even if you do have the right team members, how do you make sure that you're developing them, giving them clear expectations and, and guidelines and accountability to make sure that they're empowered to do their job the right way? Because too many times it's loosey-goosey and there's crossover with other employees. Clear expectations aren't set of what you want them to be doing. And then ultimately, it's kind of like the, the big thing, I call it drive-by de delegation, right? You got a couple of <laughs> team members and you're just like whoever's closest to you, you just dump on them. And it's like, right. wait a second, isn't that, isn't that her job or isn't that his job? Why are you telling me, right? And so it empowers them to like get it to the right people by having those expectations set. So let's talk about kind of like bringing them on board and then also things we can put in place to, to give them success. So in the, in the bringing them on board arena, I think that there's kind of two sides to this. One is bringing on board somebody who is going to become an advisor but it's a different process, I feel, if you're bringing on board someone who's going to be more of the service or the operations team. Would you agree with no, that? No. Yeah. Absolutely. That's why we have two tracks, right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So at um, C2P, we have a track that's called the hiring advantage, and that's more speaking to the service and the operations team. It's kind of a step-by-step -step process of how to find hire and then um, onboard that, uh, that service team, that operations team. But diving deep into, um, you know, things that you would pick up inside of what's called a Colby test, which really delves into what somebody's natural work instinct is. And you can see from that kind of testing where they're going to align well with their team members and also where there might be some friction in the natural way that they work. And so bringing that into your hiring process can make a huge difference in hiring the right person versus the wrong person. And then on that, on that end, which this is where both tracks intersect is the responsibility agreements, but in the accountability chart with all the responsibility agreements. But before we go there, Mary, tell them about kind of the track with the, um, the Right Fit Advisor program. So the Hiring Advantage is actually also a book. 
um, mm -hmm. that is available. If somebody wants to learn more about that, you can check that out um, online. Amazon has it. Um, but then also the uh, the Right Fit Advisor is our other track that you're really pioneering. I mean, it's a collaborative effort of a number of us involved, but you're really the lead on it, Mary. So talk a little bit about that, of finding the Right Fit Advisor. So I think one of the challenges that offices have is finding great advisors to join their team. And um, it, one of the issues is that it's not the same for all advisors. There's really kind of two archetypes of personality when it comes to advisors. There's a hunter and there's a farmer. The hunter is going to thrive on going out and finding new business, finding new relationships, becoming a rainmaker. The farmer is going to thrive more on tending to existing relationships. And if somebody new is brought to them, developing that relationship and nurturing that along to create new business. But they're two very different types of people. And both of them have amazing advantages, but you can't really have the same track from start to finish for both of those types of, of advisors. So the Right Fit Advisor is a program that we're creating that is about hiring, onboarding, and then actually training people, depending on where they are from that hunter and farmer, you know, mindset, and also where they are in their experience, in their career, their licensing, their capacity, and things like that. But it really helps you find and hire the right advisor. If you're looking for a hunter, it helps you find the hunters. If you're looking for a farmer, it helps you find the farmer. And sometimes somebody starts as a farmer and eventually can bridge over to be a hunter. And that, that bridge piece of training them to go from farmer to hunter is part of this program too. But it's very, very comprehensive and it's something that will help you get the right people on your team in the right seats to be able to continue to grow your business. So production responsibilities don't continue to fall, continue to fall on you. You're creating the future level of rainmakers in your business. Yeah, that's awesome, Mary. And even to like go a little deeper too, um, uh, think of it this way. There's five rungs that an advisor from a career path standpoint, and this is so important. Like when you're bringing people in your office, you got to show them a career path. Now you might need not need to do that if you're just bringing in like a, you know, customer service rep, receptionist, or administrative assistant, maybe that's all they're looking for, right? They're not looking right. for a career right. path. But if you're bringing in uh, somebody, especially like high, like somebody who, uh, in particular, let's talk about the advisor track, because don't get me wrong, operations people want career paths too, in a lot of instances. But let's talk about the advisor. There's five rungs, right? And so number one, is the entry level, which is a client service advisor. Number two would be the next evolution in their in their career would be going to paraplanner. Number three would be associate advisor. And this and my this is more kind of where that bridge starts to happen right. because like if you bring a, a farmer in, you're bringing them in at a client service advisor or a paraplanner. Or there are farmers that are great associate advisors, but but then that's kind of where the bridge starts happening, like you talked about, over to the rainmaker 
which is lead advisor, and then maybe they work their way even to partner of your firm. And now that's a whole nother discussion of succession mm -hmm. planning. But you got to put the golden handcuffs on a rainmaker because eventually they're going to go open their own firm if you don't show them a path to partnership within your firm. Right. So think of those five levels of client service advisor, paraplanner, associate advisor, lead advisor, and then partner. And to your point, Mary, like the track of bringing a farmer in, you're probably going to bring them in at one, two, or or three. Um now you're going to bring a hunter in. You're you're not going to bring any hunters in at one or two. You're going to bring well, maybe at a two for temporarily, but really you're primarily bringing them in at three, four, and maybe even five if you're talking mergers with another firm or big book of business. Right. So circling back to what we were saying earlier in terms of um, the responsibility agreements and the accountability chart and things like that. Each one of these five rungs of the career path of an advisor has different accountabilities that they are responsible for. It has different tasks or responsibilities that they own. And so one of the things that the Right Fit Advisor Program has done is clarified, if you're in this position, what are the responsibilities that that person should have for that level? And then what are the criteria for them to achieve in order to promote to the next level? Um, and when you're hiring new people that you eventually hope become rainmakers, showing them that path of success, marrying it up with them understanding what they're actually going to be doing at the different levels, and then lastly, tying reasonable compensation to it that they can get excited about, it brings it all together in a way that makes it a very attractive proposal for someone to join your team as a producer, as an advisor role. And the reality is if you're gonna take five months off from your business, you have to have other people in there producing. That can't live without somebody doing production. No doubt. <laughs> right? And you know, so yeah, Mary, and even to go uh, again, kind of a little deeper on what you just said, so both with the hiring advantage, which is our track and our proven process of how to bring on, you know, a, an operational team member, and then with the um, with the right fit advisor, which is our proven process on how to really build a career path and compensation modeling, and just the whole um, hiring and onboarding and giving success to an advisor that wants to plug into your firm. Um, the, you know, both of these programs ultimately lead to something that we really learned about the concept. Originally, I learned about it from E-Myth, and then um, EOS runs on an almost identical type of system, but it's called an accountability chart. And it's not in, this is not an org chart, right? And people right. confuse the two. Um, so this is not a reporting structure org chart. Um, I mean, it's got a flavor of that, but it's an accountability chart, but it clearly lays out the different responsibility agreements. And this is where we really created this, this next evolution of the responsibility agreements because they're clear kind of boxes that we've broken out that are responsibilities within you know, that realm, like regardless if you're coming on in as an operations person or as an advisor. So like right. we have a responsibility agreement for 
um, scheduling. We have a responsibility agreement for uh, prospecting, right? For actually making prospecting calls. Like in your career path, once you're a lead advisor, you're not making prospecting calls anymore. But if, if you're at an associate advisor level or, pop, or a pair planner level in some instances, you're actually doing prospecting calls. Um, cl um, client service is a responsibility agreement. New business processing and status is a responsibility agreement. Case design. So we've broken it out into bite-sized pieces so you can, you can kind of move the chess pieces around and give them to the appropriate team members and they have clear, you and they are clearly on the same page of what your expectations are of them and what they have to do to succeed in their job. Right, right. And I think that's huge because clarity and expectations creates cohesive work, creates a cohesive collaborative company. Okay, so no, I want to... No. I want to um, step away from that piece of like the practice management side of it for a minute, because if you're going to take five months off from your company and if new business is still going to occur, then I think that the kind of the third thing here, you know, we've talked about core processes. We've talked about having an amazing team. The third part of this is you really need to have marketing processes working, marketing strategies operating that don't drive all the new business to you as the founder, they're driving business to all advisors in the firm. So Jason, talk a little bit about some of the marketing programs that your firm has in place that continue to drive that production while you were out. Yeah, so there's really four things that are driving new financial services clients to our firm. One is the Medicare that I already talked about. So that continues to bring new financial services clients because first they become Medicare clients. Um, it's a profitable division of our firm. And then from there, they're introduced into our financial services. Where then, so it's almost like a profitable lead generation solution. We're making money <laughs> nice. to do marketing. Most of them cost money. a lot. And you know, the other thing is, Mary, and this is what's so cool, because we have different practices, right? And but. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, there's a lot, ton of similarities on, on how we run our businesses. But from a marketing standpoint, the four, and then I want to hear yours, but our four drivers are, and not in this particular order, but one is Medicare and introducing through there. The second is the tax practice. So we do tax preparation. We've done tax planning forever, but we got tired of doing tax planning and not really get paid for it. So we added tax preparation and it gave us the ability to charge also for the tax planning. And so we do tax preparation and ultimately same thing, the tax preparation clients feed our financial services because we have all the financial advisors deliver the tax returns. So they come in, they meet with, they meet with the uh, tax preparer, they get, gather all the data, they explain part of the quality control process. We're going to prepare the return, second set of I's, dot the I's, cross the T's, make sure everything looks good. Then you're going to sit down with an advisor. He's going to go line by line through the return and identify if there's any potential ways to save money mm -hmm. on taxes now mm -hmm. or into the future. Real simple, right? Then they come back in, second appointment, 
after they drop their stuff off, met with the preparer, and then they sit down with the advisor, and the advisor's got a guaranteed first appointment, just like the Medicare that we talked about. Again, profitable lead generation solution. We're making money to drive business to our firm. The third component is nonprofit adult education. So we do a lot of that, and um, we do a lot of, uh, in, in even, not just nonprofit, we also do straight adult education classes. So we got a couple different venues of how we do that, two that we use very successfully, and we do topics of Medicare, Social Security, um, taxes and retirement, and the value of a holistic plan, the reason you want to have a well-coordinated holistic plan. So we do those educational topics at the local universities on a very regular basis. And then the fourth and final component is referrals. We do a, we do a great job servicing the hell out of our clients, giving them a very unique, high-touch experience, and we get a lot of referrals because we do it. Gotcha. And, and I would say that um, we have crossover on two things. So, you know, when people ask me, like, what, how much marketing should you be doing? I've always been taught and have shared with other people, you should have four wells of marketing. So think of it as a well. And, and the reason that a well is a good analogy is because sometimes your well will run dry. <laughs> and so then the other wells are, you know, producing what you need to produce. So um, our four wells, we, we cross over on the um, educational events. So we have a variety of different seminars, lunch and learns and things like that that we do. Um, we also have a good referral program in terms of uh, taking care of clients and gathering referrals. But the other two ones that are a little bit unique to our office that differ from yours is that we actually have a podcast that we do. It's, it's a local radio show that gets then converted into a podcast. It's called Money Guide with Mary Stirk. And um, so we pick up a lot of listeners, both local and nationwide, from that. And then the last thing that we've done is I did write a book that is called Ready to Pull the Retirement Trigger. And we have a good digital marketing campaign built around that, that we attract in clients and uh, they can, if they've read the book, they can contact us or we can they can request the book, you know, through an online portal, and then we can market to them after that. So we continue to pick up really larger clients that come through that book funnel um, as one of our wells of marketing. But the bottom line here is I think that in order to be able to take time off of your practice and have it thrive, not just survive, these are the three key things that have to be in place. Core processes, a strong team, and marketing that is strategically going on an ongoing basis. And I really think those are the three critical pieces that help your business thrive if the founder or the lead advisor is not operational for a while. Yeah, or in, you might not be operational because you're golfing, you're touring the world. <laughs> I wouldn't suggest the open art surgery. That wasn't fun. <laughs> so, There's easier ways right. to take five months off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. This is an awesome podcast, uh, Mary. I enjoyed doing it with you. I appreciate you Thank being you. Yeah. right now. Yeah. All right. So, well, we thanks. hope this has been great information for all the listeners, too. And uh, we'll look forward to sharing with you the next time. Bye-bye.
The Rainmaker Multiplier on-demand series is brought to you by Clarity to Prosperity, a financial training, coaching, and IP development organization led by financial advisors, coaches, and business leaders committed to taking a holistic approach to advising. To learn more about our organization and upcoming training opportunities for financial professionals, visit ClarityToProsperity.com.